I wonder how you uh, measure, how you measure success. Think about in your workplace, in your career. And what does success look like for you there? Maybe turn to uh, relationships broadly. Uh, as you look back over the last decade, do you, do you look back and think, well, that's been a great success for me in all my relationships? What about the church? What defines success here? One of the underlying issues as we go through the book of 2 Corinthians is that we have a very young church here that have begun to import kind of worldly measures of success into the church and especially with regard to the leadership. They had a view uh, of what the Christian life ought to look like and what ministry, leadership within the church ought to look like. And in reality, the church had become virtually indistinct from the people in, in this wonderful city of Corinth, this bustling, successful, cosmopolitan city of Corinth that surrounded them. The, the church and the city seemed so similar in many ways. And that is a very dangerous tendency that churches down the ages have fallen foul to. And let us be honest, we are not immune if we define success here at church uh, in terms of our gifts, in terms of our strengths, if success in our lives, for example, is determined by how much we can grab of all the good things that we know in this life, I think we will see that we have lost sight of the truth. In London, people think, I guess, uh, like many Western cultures, that they succeed when they get what they want. Happiness, ease within life, uh, travel and leisure, health and wealth. And don't hear me wrongly here, all of those things are good things. But you think about the opposite side. Does that make the depressed, the poor and the sick failures? You see, out there, success is strength. And weakness in all categories is failure. And that, that kind of begs the question for all of us then. How do we view ourselves when weakness comes our way? As it inevitably will do at some point through suffering and loss, loneliness, whatever it may be. How do we view ministry, for example, in our church when things quite don't go to plan? Over the next year we'll be spending most of our time most of the year will be spent in this letter to 2 Corinthians. Why? Because we need to. We need to know what true strength looks like. What true success looks like. Individually, of course, but also for us as a church. We live in a very impatient age, don't we? With hurried judgments and consumed by image and health and wealth. And Paul writes to this young church in Corinth who were consumed with the same things. He'd established this church. He loves this church so dearly, as we'll see. But he writes because they, like us, are perfectly set up to misunderstand these things. Even the gospel itself was under threat. And think about it just for a moment, you know, the good news that Jesus, sorry, that God would send his only son, Jesus, 
into the world, into a weak and fragile situation in a stable in Bethlehem, that he would be killed shamefully and hang on a Roman cross. It just smacks of weakness. It smacks of failure, doesn't it? The message of the gospel is something that none of us would ever have invented. It just looks too weak, doesn't it? Which is exactly why, down through the centuries, there have always been teachers who would come along and they would distort this message of the gospel because they're just embarrassed by its perceived weakness. And 2 Corinthians is written as an antidote, if you like, to such teaching, to such thinking. Please be warned, though, as we begin, as we look at, at this letter together, know that some of our, the assumptions that you may have made, we have made, about the gospel, about ministry in the church, about the Christian life as we lead it, they will be confronted. But let's pray. Let's pray that we are willing to be transformed and changed, to live in line with the truth of God's word, not embarrassed by the truth. But why did Paul specifically write this letter? There's a few, uh, there's a bit of a, an outline there. We're going to go through a bunch of things today before we get to those two verses at the beginning of the letter. Why did Paul, though, begin specifically to, to write this letter? Now, let me give you a bit of context here, a bit of background, if I may. Today is half in half, half kind of context, background, and then so we get a handle of the whole letter and then a little bit at the end with those last two verses. So let me give you some background, though. Paul has visited Athens. He's preached there. And he's travelled now to Athens, 60 miles west. That's where Corinth is, along what's called the Isthmian Way. And you can read about that journey in Acts chapter 18, if you want to look at that later. Paul remained in Corinth, uh, preaching and teaching, supported by Tyler, uh, Timothy and Silas. And, and Priscilla and Aquila, who you might know from the book of Romans, they've been booted out of Rome and they join them in their journey. We read in Acts 18, verse 18, that Paul stayed on in Corinth. It says simply for some time. In that time, he preached and he teached and a a small church is established. And Paul then continued on his journey, as was his custom, preaching elsewhere, starting other churches. Now, three years elapsed, roughly three years elapsed, and he then hears a report that the young church in Corinth were going astray a little bit. They were divided He writes a letter to them. We have it. It's 1 Corinthians. It's the letter before the one we're looking at. And if you know that letter, you will know how divided, how far the church in Corinth had moved from the gospel that Paul had uh, taught them. Especially with kind of issues of morality. And Paul states, therefore, in 1 Corinthians, the letter that he sent to them, that he planned to visit them. uh, Partially also to collect funds for the poorer churches in the area. But in the interim, before he could go and visit them, he sent Timothy. He sent Timothy to go and check things out. And it wasn't good at all. Timothy uh, then reports back to Paul about the growing problems in Corinth. And so Paul visits them again. And it's what's referred to. Just turn to chapter 2, verse uh, 1, if you can, of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 1. We're on page uh, 1159 here. And you'll see there Paul referring to a painful visit. Now, he, this is the visit he goes back. He wants to correct them. And it's a painful visit, probably because Paul was an absolute flop here. 
His preaching and even the fact of him being an apostle was being challenged by the church. The church in Corinth were questioning his credentials on a whole heap of levels. You know, the fact that Paul was, he looked at his life and it was full of suffering, as we'll see as we go through the letter, and they just couldn't like get, he's an apostle and yet he's suffering. He, he's this, meant to be this great preacher, but look at him, look at his life, it's a mess. He preached and, and he wasn't like many who were around at the time. He was quite plain. He was very biting as well at times. He wasn't a very impressive man to look like, unlike the chiseled features of many of the other kind of the impressive preachers around. Uh, he wasn't like, you know, he wouldn't take a good selfie like James Bourne or anyone like that. You know, the painful visit was not to be repeated. He couldn't do that again. So he wrote to the church in Corinth again. A letter, just turn to uh, chapter 2, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians. And you see there, uh, he writes a letter, which is known as the severe letter. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. We do not have this letter. But we know it was written. It was a severe letter, a call to repentance. Some scholars even call it the letter of tears. Paul, flip, flip over to chapter 7 again. Chapter 7, so we're on page 1163. Chapter 7, verse 8. Paul refers to this letter again. Even if I caused you, uh, sorry, verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorrow, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Paul hears wonderfully by, by God's grace that this letter had been received and it had been taken to heart. The people had repented to a degree. And so in response to that news, Paul then writes to Corinthians. A letter that's written about AD 55. And in this he promises to visit again the church in Corinth. Now, let's be honest, the problems haven't all gone away. As we'll see as we go through, but... The church was still being led astray. Some of the issues of 1 Corinthians have been dealt with, but they were still listening to others. They were going after wrong things, especially wrong leaders. And so Paul writes this letter, hear this, to defend authentic gospel ministry. And to defend the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. That is shown very much in the structure. I'm not going to spend too long on this, but uh, the, the book is very simple in many ways. Chapters 1 to 7, they're all about Paul defending himself as an apostle and his ministry within the church. Chapters 8 to 10 are then an appeal from Paul. Uh, really, uh, give us some, he's asking for money to, to send out to the poorer churches in the area. And essentially that is an outworking of chapters 1 to 7. It's an outworking of the gospel ministry he's defended in previous chapters. The last four chapters, chapters 10 to 13, wow, we're going to look at those in September through to the end of October, and it, woo, they're going to be tough. They're hard, kind of, uh, with the language used, but they are so hard in what we have to hear. It's Paul defending his ministry again, but they're stronger chapters than you've ever heard Paul speak in a letter before. 
They are more emotional than you've ever heard Paul before. Now, if you think, you know, what do you know of Paul's letters? If you think Romans, you're thinking, you know, Romans is like Paul defending, uh, or, you know, his understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this wonderful, massive work of his understanding of the gospel. Ephesians, you're thinking like he's, he's sort of spilling his beans on the kind of the, the doctrine of the church there. And, and the pastoral epistles, that's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. That's him giving his instructions in love to the young leaders of the churches which he's established. You get to 2 Corinthians and what, what kind of sets it out? It is the most emotional, the most heartrending of all of Paul's letters. It is a letter of relentless affection. One scholar described it, and I think this is very helpful. It's a letter of wounded love. Do you know what that is? You ever felt that? You know, when someone that you have loved and you've invested in so much, they just turn their back on you. You ever felt that? You know, when someone that you've nurtured in the faith is led astray by someone else, that is wounded love hurts doesn't it and it's that painful love that runs throughout this letter to this Corinthian church they were turning their backs on Paul and the gospel that he proclaimed they were being led astray and it hurt him greatly so Paul writes this letter to Corinthians wounded but very much in love to remind the church of authentic gospel ministry. Let's have a quick look at why we're looking at 2 Corinthians. You'll see on your sheets there three things, three familiars there. Firstly, it's a familiar situation. Let me give you a picture, if I may, of, of Corinth. Classical Corinth itself was destroyed in 146 BC. It was laid to ruin and it was abandoned. It remained uninhabited until 44 BC when Julius Caesar rebuilt the city in a very grand way. It was around about uh, a few years later, AD 49-50, when Paul last visited, the, sorry, about 100 years later, when Paul last visited the city, about AD 49-50. It was then known as Neo-Corinth, New Corinth. It was a young, only 100 years at this stage, 100 or so years old, it was a very vibrant, bustling commercial hub. It was seen as the third city of the Roman Empire. You had Rome, you had Alexandria, and then you had Corinth. It was an economic boom town, essentially, because of its strategic position uh, along the Isthmian Way from east to west. All the trade came that way. And it grew hugely as a result. It had grown to about 80,000 people by the time Paul had visited it. Uh, it was understood as the answer to Rome's overcrowding. Rome was terribly overcrowded. Uh, and most of the population, therefore, were immigrants. They moved there in order to kind of get along with the boom of the city financially. Uh, many freedmen had located themselves there. That is, people who were once slaves and had kind of either bought themselves out or lived themselves out of slavery. They ended up there, along with a lot of... Um, retired Roman army officers as well. So you've got this, all these people coming there, all these immigrant population, all wanting to make a fast buck or a dollar or whatever we are in pounds here. They just desperately wanted. That was what the city was about. It was ethnically diverse and demographically slim. Let me explain what I mean by that because it's really important. 
That is, there was no aristocracy in Corinth. Now, you know, there wasn't these, these people who said, I've always lived this way, this is, this is who I am, I went to this kind of school. There was no aristocracy in Corinth. It had grown quickly by the aspiring, essentially middle classes that we understand in Britain. And therefore, Corinth, if you were to kind of ascend up the social ladder, the only means to do that was wealth. We would describe it as a, it was a nouveau riche city. As a result, Corinth was known as the entertainment and kind of sports capital of the area. The Isthmian Games were kind of held there, which was an extraordinary game, only slightly smaller than the Olympics. The city was famed for its huge 18,000-seater capacity theatre. It was a cosmopolitan, fun, exciting city. And people basically flocked there for a good time. You could think what you want. You could do what you want, experience what you want. Sports, entertainment, sex, temple worship were all kind of mixed together in this cauldron of hedonism known as Corinth. I wonder if that rings any bells. Sounds familiar? The people were self-made, they were proud, they worshipped the gods of health and wealth. They, yeah, they were incredibly individualistic, but yet also religiously pluralistic. The dress code may have been different in first century Corinth, but I think we would feel very much at home there. The parallels to modern Western culture are pretty striking. It's a familiar situation. There are some very familiar passages as well. I'm going to read a number of passages to you. Please do follow with me through your Bibles, and we're going to go to a number of places throughout the letter. And I want to show you, I think you'll know a whole heap of these. Remember the wounded love that Paul writes with. I wonder why, if, whether that is the reason there are so me many memorable verses. He writes with such strength, but also beauty. Let me just take you through some of them. In chapter 2, verse 15, follow with me there. Chapter 2, verse 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. I guess some of us will know these verses. Chapter 4, verse 7. Flip across the page. Chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Chapter 4, verse 16. I can't wait to preach these three verses. One week, three verses. We have got another short one, but there you go. Um, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we be renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's wonderful stuff, isn't it? Uh, probably the summary verse, well, a very short verse, but chapter 5, verse 7. Many would consider this as the kind of the summary of the whole letter in some ways. For we live by faith and not by sight. You know these, I'm sure. Chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. They are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Chapter 5, verse 21. Essentially, the great summary of the gospel in this, in this letter. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll flip forward a little bit further. Chapter 8, verse 9. Probably one of the most beautiful verses 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And in, flip forward to chapter 11. Here we have Paul. It's going to be some hard verses. He pours out very much his whole life, his sufferings, his trials. It ends like this. Chapter 11, verse 27. I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. You see some of his passion, his emotion here. It's wonderful. And the book ends with probably the best known verse of all. Yet I'm not sure you even knew it came from 2 Corinthians. Chapter 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. These are familiar passages, aren't they? They're often, unusually, not preached together. That's when you look at you know, who preaches what around the world. These are very... Not often do people go for a whole time in 2 Corinthians. They take snapshots. Why? I think because this will be an uncomfortable year for you in some ways, but also an uncomfortable year for me and Ash as we preach through it. But we must pray that it will be a fruitful one. Oh, I just uh, encourage you. Why not give yourself an evening this week? Some some point, get out a hot chocolate or whatever your thing is, and you know, get in front of the fire or whatever you do, and just just read the whole way through. It's a wonderful thing to do. This is an absolute page turner. I'm trying to give you little kind of kind of pointers. Say this is where it's heading, so you get it. You get the big picture. Just get spend an evening, go through it, join up the dots, see that big picture. Paul, in his wounded love, as he sees this church being drawn away, he urges them, he pleads with them to see the true nature of ministry within the new covenant which has been established in Jesus' blood, where weakness is a source of strength and where suffering is actually a vehicle of God's power. As my brother would say, this is going to blow your minds. This is a familiar situation. These are familiar passages. But there are also familiar challenges. You see that on the sheets. Familiar challenges. Of all the men in history, I think Paul suffers the most. I don't think there's a man in all history who suffers more than he did. Although each of us under God's sovereign hand will face varying trials in our lives, we, are, we need to understand that not any of us are immune but in a culture that reveres health and strength, how are we to live through the inevitable struggles and weaknesses that we will all face at some point? How do we speak? How do you even speak of weakness? I mean, how can Paul say, let me just flip forward to chapter 11, verse 30. Chapter 11, verse 30. How can Paul say these words? If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Well, my prayer this year is that we begin to see, as Paul did, that in and through and over our inevitable weaknesses in this life, our trials and our suffering. Our prayer must be that we live by faith through them and not by sight. 
Knowing that God's word is true, knowing that his promises are true. Um, and look, just flip forward to chapter 12, verse 9. Yeah, this is true. This is what we're, we're, we're aiming to understand as we go through this year. We want to see that God's words are true. Chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, God says. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I guess our prayer this year will be that we learn to do weakness well. For there we will find strength. True strength. It brings us, uh, flip back to the first two verses of our passage. We've got a little while, not long. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul begins his letter leaving no uncertainty about why he writes. And he isn't going to waste any words. He writes to preserve his ministry and therefore preserve the church. And it's all packed there into verse 1. Let's look at that together. And Paul here sets aside the traditional greetings which he's used before and others would use, which always would have included thanksgiving for the recipients. And he just opens with, this is who I am and this is who you are as the church. So who is Paul? Let's have a look at that in verse 1. We see on your outline there, he is God's apostle. Paul is God's apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul's very clear, isn't he? As he begins this letter, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is, he has seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ, as he did on the road to Damascus. You can read of that in Acts 9. He's been appointed and empowered by the risen Lord Jesus. And his emphasis here is therefore his authority. He is an apostle of the risen Lord Jesus. But don't overlook how carefully crafted Paul's words are here. He's showing the church that he is the sent one. That's what the, apostle, that's what the word apostle means. He is the sent one of the ultimate sent one. Namely Christ Jesus, who was sent by his Father. Christ Jesus meaning the anointed Saviour. Added to that though here, Paul is showing the church that as the commissioned and empowered sent one, of the ultimate sent one, he comes by the same will of God. Therefore to reject, you see, Paul's authority as an apostle of Christ Jesus is to reject Christ Jesus himself and therefore God himself. If you challenge Paul's words, if you challenge Paul's authority, that's what he's saying right at the beginning here, you challenge the will of God, you challenge God himself. Paul is God's apostle. And as we read through Paul's words in this letter, we must remind ourselves of this. As an apostle of Christ Jesus, he is sent by the will of God. And so therefore he speaks and he writes the very words of God. Challenge his authority in your life. You're challenging God himself. 
God's apostle, now let's look at God's church. Halfway through verse 1, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Two titles, you see that for the church there? They are the church of God and they are described there as holy people. Now the title there, the church of God, places this struggling church wonderfully in a long line looking back and looking forward of God's people. But notice the owner. They are not Paul's church. They're not Timothy and Silas's church. Even though they've worked so hard in their endeavour to preach the gospel in that amazing city of Corinth. It is the church of God in Corinth. Likewise, we are the church of God here. We are an assembly of believers in this place of God. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is not our church. We are the church of God who gather in this place to hear him speak through his word and by his spirit so that we can be encouraged, that we can be trained and built up so that we might leave this place and proclaim that same good news to those around us. The second title he uses, the holy uh, people there, it's not flattery to make the readers listen a little bit longer. Think about what the church in Corinth has been like, 1 Corinthians, they've been led astray. Yes, there's a touch of irony here, as Paul describes the church, but they are holy people, not because of who they are, because of what Christ has done for them and made them as they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are holy people by virtue of his work and not their own. So we are introduced to God's apostle and God's church, a theme that will run throughout the letter. But finally, Paul ends his greeting with his desire for the church, his prayer, if you like, for the church. Look at it in verse 2. God's apostle writes to God's church, praying that they will know God's grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul is very cleverly here, uh, slightly changing the traditional greeting with a clever wordplay. He kind of replaces the, the, the traditional hello, essentially, of a, a kind of a greeting, a letter greeting. And he replaces it with a surprising grace. We miss it in our language, but they're very similar in the Greek, in their sounds. Now, it would have caught the readers off guard slightly. Grace, really? Grace? But what a, what a wonderful greeting. What a wonderful salutation here. Grace and peace. Now think about that for a moment. Peace always follows grace as it stems from the covenantal love of God that offers eternal peace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you see the link? And do you see the pain? Let me show you both quickly. The link, grace is the undeserved kindness of God that leads to eternal peace with God that is in heaven. This can only be known through the gospel of grace that Paul has proclaimed. That gospel that Jesus uh, lived and died and suffered and died in our place and he rose again to new life. Uh, Paul is reminding the church of Corinth that if the church reject Paul, they reject Grace and peace. Do you see the link? But do you also see the pain here? 
Paul loves this church. He's established this church. They were rejecting him and Paul writes this knowing the consequences for each and every one of them if they reject him and the gospel that he proclaims. No grace and no peace. As we spend time in 2 Corinthians, be careful, be really careful not just to to hang on to the one-liners, the memorable verses that you know already. This is a call from the Apostle Paul, by the will of God, with the authority and the power of God, to God's church in Corinth. We have much to learn, much to be challenged by, but there is also so much, this this letter is just overwhelmingly littered with comfort and joy to prepare us for the inevitable tears of this life. Maybe right now you consider yourself strong, successful. Things are going well in worldly terms. Maybe you consider yourself right now weak and failures in a sense of worldly terms. 2 Corinthians, I pray, will refine those categories in your heart and in your mind so you can know true strength. Strength found in weakness, found supremely and ultimately shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I read earlier, chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. The one with strength took on our weakness. The verse goes on, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that we might know true, eternal strength. Let's pray as we close. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the glories of the gospel. That Jesus, who has all eternal strength, was willing to take on himself all our frailty, our weakness and our sin. So that we might know your righteousness, it might be transferred, imputed to us. And therefore we might know eternal strength, safe in your hands for glory. Forgive us, I pray, if we understand what strength is in categories which are not faithful and true to your word. Help us this year, I pray, to to seek the truth, to long to be moulded by the truth. Help us to listen carefully to God's word. Lord, I pray that we would be those who just long to be moulded and made more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.